Hi there. I'm Vin Barbarino. And I'm running for the office of student body president. If elected, I promise less homework. Now, how are you going to keep a promise like less homework? If I'm elected, I'm going to do less homework. I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Ow! Be a fuddy-duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'll never get into Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I got to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to the Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And we have quite a trope to talk about today. Amy, what is the TV sitcom cliche we are about to discuss? Let's run for class president. Yeah, school president, class president, elections. This is another one with many, many instances Pretty much, if you're watching a show about teenagers or kids in school, sooner or later, there is going to be an episode about the school election. So what are the episodes we watched? So we are watching Welcome Back, Cotter, which is season one, episode five, The Election. And then we're watching a personal favorite of mine, Webster, which is season six, episode five, also called The Election. If you're looking for it on streaming services, though, you'll find it listed as episode 11. And then we moved on to Parker Lewis Can't Lose, season one, episode four. And that one is called Parker Lewis must lose again this one's mislabeled in the streaming services it is episode four but the titles are switched this one was tricky if you're watching it on crackle just stick to your guns and watch episode four no matter what and then we rounded it out with another personal favorite of mine blossom season three episode 10 making of a president yeah so school class president elections right this is one i i honestly am I'm curious about the answer to this have you ever or were you involved with any sort of student government type stuff when you were a kid not in high school i ran for student council representative in like for my class in elementary school so i think it was like fourth or fifth grade and it was fifth grade and i ran to be you know i wanted to be one of the two kids that represented mrs blanchard's homeroom in student council, and I did not win because I was very uncool. I was a hundred percent myambialic in Webster. All we right, get a so, double episode of myambialic, by oh the way. Oh yeah, we'll, this, we'll this get to so the, exciting. The it was amazing so much fun. Ubiquity of myambialic. So your experience mirrored the dichotomy that they they always set up in these sitcoms, which is there's the one person that is the candidate of substance and there's the one person that's popular. And right. that, that was borne out with your experience. Well, I don't know that I was the candidate of substance either, but I uh, definitely was not popular. Yeah. I never did anything like this. I did debate in high school, which has some similarities. But what I remember so clearly, and to this day, I think of this as a metaphor for when politicians make these unfeasible promises. I remember in seventh grade, we had this uh, class president election, and the girl that I had a crush on, Abby, was one of the ones running. 
And, you know, we had this little assembly where they're able to make their speeches just like they always do in the shows. And I remember two of her promises were less homework and wider hallways. (laughs) She said that the hallways are too narrow. Nobody can get where they're going in between classes. So I remember watching this being like 12 years old or whatever and going, I don't think she's going to be able, and it's so funny to me to to look back on that and picture this like 13-year-old girl with like a hard hat and a clipboard walk, walk, <laughs> walking around going, all right, boys, move those lockers over another 10 feet. We need to widen this thing. But yeah, I think it's very funny that there are all these episodes about elections, but very rarely is there an episode about being a class president because there's nobody even knows what it is. You know, it's just such an interesting trope to have an election take place in your school. You yeah, know? just like regular government. Once people are elected, they well, you hope they go about the business of, you know, running the government. Most of the time they go about the business of lining their own pockets. But uh, it all happens behind closed doors and we don't really get to know, you know, what goes on in the room where it happens, as it oh, were. Well, you mean the uh, public service club that we see in Webster, the weird cabal of uh, six-year-olds that <laughs> decide the fate of the school? Well, they were uh, apparently in sixth grade, which was yeah, shocking yeah. to me. Yeah, we'll get to all that. Uh, it's very exciting that we have four completely new shows this time. No, no repeats for the pod. So let's dive into Welcome Back Potter. I feel like this this is a big one. Like this is a very, for better or worse, a singular show. I think uh I I remember watching this a lot in the reruns. You know, they showed this one at Nick at Night. I remember enjoying it on the level of like, oh, this is like Saved by the Bell, but the weird 70s version. Um, <laughs> and it's just it's so dated and so silly. What's your experience with Welcome Back, Cotter? I, I similarly, I think I did watch some of these episodes, you know, on reruns, Nick at Night, whatever it was. I was super into Grease, as we've talked about many times. I'm such a musical theater nerd. So I loved Grease. Of course, I love John Travolta. And so I was like, oh, this is so cool. This was this show that he was on. And I, well, the episode that we watched is episode five of all, like season one, episode five. And they were, this was still Gabe Kaplan's show. And it was all his stand-up comedy and bits from his routine. Like they still had the opening and the closing where he's just sitting in his house or doing something in his house with his wife where he's like doing bits of his stand-up comedy routine. They phased that out? I think they phased that out because I don't remember much of that in the later seasons. What at least was memorable to me were the funny bits with the sweat hogs and the kids. And this episode just made me want to bang my head against the wall. It was no fun. Yeah, let's talk about that thing of being sort of plucked from his stand-up act. You know, we've discussed many times the history of sitcoms obviously is littered with, you know, shows based around comedians' personality. We have that as far back as Lucille Ball and Jackie Gleason and all these guys, Dick Van Dyke, et cetera, et cetera. This is the one where I think until you get to Seinfeld and he's literally on stage doing his act, this is the one where you see the really direct line from, we're not just going to take this this comedian and sort of tap into his personality. We're really going to take jokes or maybe write new jokes, but everything is going to be basically a stand-up act 
you know, spliced into a school sitcom. Yeah. And that's exactly what it was. You know, his wife is like the uh, son in Sanford and Son, just there to set up his story that he's going to tell. And then we go to the school and he's a teacher. So he, you know, does the thing of pontificating in front of his students where he can do whatever silly funny bits voices. that he wants. Yes, funny voices and and pretend that he is, you know, at a uh, the some national convention where they're electing uh, people. Yeah. And yeah, it was. I mean, first of all, we start off with the casual a- Asian I racism. Was just going to say now now is the time for our weekly apology to the Asian community. Uh, this particular opening bit with the wife is all about this little joke where he says. I didn't know if I was adopted. And then I asked my dad and then he says some like obviously Chinese name. And then it ends with, uh, you know, wild Asian caricature voice, just like we got in Mr. Ed. Yeah, but at least he wasn't going yellow face. You yeah, know, th- like, this I mean, is his vocal I, yellow face. Right. right. <laughs> it's, it's just another one of these things, like we said, you know, don't need to dwell on it. But prior to relatively recently, Doing the voices of foreign nationalities is funny. You yeah, know, that's, yeah, that's that's I guess. <laughs> it's what what just continues to surprise me about these things is th- just how casually it was like it's like no big deal. And when you know, it just makes me think about like all, all these times we hear people saying like what do you mean there's no such thing as white supremacy nobody's being oppressed it's like the casual racism that just exists in all of this everyday culture is like man uh, i don't know if you can say that white supremacy doesn't exist <laughs> well it's it's exactly what it means to be marginalized it's right. the idea of going like Sure, some Chinese people will be offended by that, but that's a small portion of the population and most people will like it. So that's okay. And you we know? get the exact replica of what you just said in a more, you know, like updated version later on in Blossom, the latest show that we watch in our, uh, out of our four in this episode. And in Blossom, she is going around and she is trying to like cater to the different needs of the different students in her student body and she's talking to a guy who's Indian and he was like hey I'd really you know all we have is sticky rice in the cafeteria I'd really like basmati rice and she says well you know the Asian vote and the Asian population here at school is just you so I don't know if I can make that promise and it's exactly what you're talking about like well I don't know if I want to change my funny I have a funny bit about making fun of Asian people and since it's only marginalizing you know 12% of the population it shouldn't be that bad. It's that weird utilitarianism that results in And yeah, if you're not part of the, you know, ethnic majority, then you're the butt of the joke. But anyway, my my other sort of overall observation about this is the look of the school and everything. If you told me this took place in like a Cormac McCarthy post-apocalyptic dystopia, that would make perfect sense. Like just the crumbling walls and the graffiti everywhere. I love that 70s New York aesthetic where it was just accepted like oh of course a public school in new york city that's what that looks like and granted i i I know it hasn't completely changed in real life but i would like to think that it's not 
quite as you know horrific as the way it looks in these in these shows two things that i loved about uh welcome back cotter is one the classroom in welcome back cotter looks like every single time snl yes. does a classroom set like I, I they just are like oh welcome back cotter that's what we're gonna do like that's our set for public schools and secondly everyone in the classroom scene was wearing the same color denim yeah, they and love denim. It was gorgeous. Like I wanted to rip the pants off every single one of them, not sexually, because I want them in my closet. Yeah. Like those bell bottoms and like high-waisted and tight pants. I was like, yes, I want them. I want them. Yeah, Vinny Barbarino is definitely rocking the full uh Canadian tuxedo all yes, the time. All the time. But yeah, it's funny you mention the setup like SNL. There's a reason for that, right? Because this is very much a uh, they even say at the end of the episode, it's recorded live to tape in front of a studio audience. If I'm always bellyaching about these older shows that go out into the world and add the fake laughter afterwards, this is 100%, maybe even the biggest example, I think, ever of the studio audience being a character in the show and this being shot in a way that is very much a live event like WrestleMania or something that you are getting to see from your home on TV. And the reason why it's set up like that, of course, I assume what you're referencing with SNL is the weird way they're cheating the perspective. So you have all of the, you know, the students' desks and seats and stuff on one end of the room and the the teacher's desk on the other end of the room. So everybody's sort of angled toward us, the audience, and everything is favored towards legibility for the audience as opposed to realism like a movie. And, you know, you talk about, well, I wasn't allowed to watch uh, Fox when it started, you know, Married with Children and The Simpsons. This was obviously before Fox existed, but this is the beginning of that kind of show, the rude, raucous drunk studio audience that's feeding into the whole energy. Yeah, it was, I mean, look, this is before, this is still early days of the sitcom. So this is before you see um, John Travolta have even the Barbarino voice. Like he's still just playing around with it. He's not quite there with the whole like <laughs> stuff that he gets into. To an into. extent, that's just how <laughs> That Travolta is just sounds. how he talks. But he wasn't quite there with, with it yet, right? He hadn't gone all the way over the edge. He was still, he was still trying to figure it out. And you've got Horshack. Uh, also still trying to figure himself out and what that character is. And right now he is kind of in that, not necessarily himbo because he's not like super attractive, but he's got that um, dumb thing going oh, yeah. on he's that he would, yeah, that he would be throughout, but they were playing it like they all felt bad for him. Whereas I remember later on in the series, he kind of had a wink in his eye where he knew he was being funny in some time, in some yeah. ways, but he didn't have that in this. Yeah. And we should also say, if nothing else, Welcome Back Cotter gets A plus for diversity, right? This like, is, oh, it's the only show that has it. Yeah, like this, every other show, you know, Webster's the only black character in Webster and everybody else yes. is white, 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 white. This is a show that takes place in real New York City, not the white supremacist alternate reality of Friends and Seinfeld, right? This is a New York where you go to a public school, you're going to have an Italian kid sitting next to a Puerto Rican Jew and a black guy and another Jewish kid like they're just the ethnic you know differences of all of them is part of the you know DNA of the show 
Yeah. And I mean, the whole thing of Welcome Back, Cotter, it's like a love letter to Brooklyn, right? Like the opening is it starts on the Welcome to Brooklyn sign, fourth largest city in the world, a sign that I've never seen. I don't know if it still exists, but and it's all these shots of, you know, outdoor scenes of 1970s Brooklyn. Um, and it's it feels gritty. It feels like I'm about yeah. to watch Taxi Driver. Yeah. Well, and like I said, they emphasize that with the sets. You even get that a little bit in Head of the Class. But with this one, it's really exaggerated. But that was, you know, that was the image of New York City at this time, you know, that unless you're like living in a penthouse or something, yeah, this is what things look like. So the this episode, like all of our episodes, we've got somebody running for class president. And in this case, it's Vinnie Barbarino. And Mr. Cotter, the teacher, is wanting to help him, his kids. Like he teaches the remedial class, right? So he, like the opposite of head of the class, or he, uh, they were teaching the advanced class. This is the remedial class. They're called the sweat hogs. Uh, Mr. Cotter talks about how he graduated from the same high school and he was also considered a sweat hog. Yeah, that's the welcome back part. He's right. coming back to teach his, the next generation. And of the remedial class, right? And he feels, you know, like he has gone on to make something of himself. And so he wants to give back to his community. And so he really sees himself in Vinny, who is running for president because he ran for president when he was there and didn't win and, you know, whatever. And so we, the first scene in the school, we see the other sweat hogs kind of trying to intimidate voters in the hallway, the other, their classmates to vote for Vinnie Barbarino. And then we go into the classroom and we see a big poster of John Travolta's face doing a really funny, like, smile where he's got his top lip like curled up under. So he, it, he's yeah, like, it's all like a teased. fire marshal bill smile. <laughs> kind of a smile. It's funny. And so it says, you know, vote for Vinny or else or something yeah, it like says, that. Vote for Vinny and nobody gets hurt. And nobody gets hurt. <laughs> yeah. This whole story is kind of funny because it's from the point of view of the bullies. You know, the whole crux of the plot is that they're, they're going to win probably, but only because they're threatening everybody and they're, the other candidates are dropping out of the race because they're threatening to beat them up or they're having people make fun of them or whatever. And so the whole thing is like this soul searching of, you know, Epstein is Barbarino's campaign manager and he's the one who's sort of going around, you know, strong arming everybody. And so, yeah, Mr. Cotter is kind of getting them to understand like this isn't, this isn't the right way to go about politicking. And it's just funny that from a sitcom, you'd be approaching it from that point of view, that you are the bully and you have to learn to not. Be. So, so they are in the classroom and Mr. Cotter is trying to explain like, hey, if you're going to run, you, you need to portray this image that isn't a sweat hog image. You need to be a real candidate and, and really properly engage in, you know, democracy if you want to try to win. And we don't get a lot of teaching like my my note on this was he's a horrible teacher yeah. like they, all he does is bits and yeah. and they learn no lessons from it and thankfully they didn't try to make anybody learn a lesson from it because at the end of class after he's done a comedy routine for the entire length of class barbarino comes up to him and is like 
I don't want to run for president anymore. Like, if you want me to change who I am and in order to get elected, then you go ahead and run for president. Like, I'm not interested. And also, if they don't want a sweat hog and they don't want me, then I don't want to be president anyway. Yeah, we've sort of got a couple conflicting sentiments going on here, right? Because part of it is the, you know, again, a very sort of sitcom trope of Mr. Cotter's butting in and he has to learn, you know, Vinny wants to sort of stick to his true personality and be himself, also a recurring theme with this election stuff. And so, yeah, Mr. Cotter has to kind of step back and stop micromanaging or stop, you know, butting in. But then there's also the aspect that we just talked about, about, well, you you have to campaign, you have to be a substantial politician. You can't go around threatening to beat people up. So I feel like, unsurprisingly, it's a little muddy what we're really supposed to take from all this. Yeah. And and at the end, it was like the kids needed to learn a lesson. And so did Mr. Cotter. So and that's where like the conflict that you're the, the muddying that you're talking about comes in. And both sides, you know, both Mr. Cotter and the kids do, you know, learn that, learn their lesson. So we get some, again, some like casual fat phobia where they call one of the, um, there's a guy candidate and a girl candidate. They're both like straight A students, highly, you know, you know, high achievers at the school and the principal who everybody likes to make fun of really likes both of those candidates. And they make fun of the girl and they call her fat. And then she shows up to tell Mr. Cotter that she's dropping out of the race because she keeps getting threatened. And she is not a fat girl. Yeah, it's it's very silly. Uh, I noted that this is similar to the Leave it to Beaver episode we watched a few months back where so much happens off camera, right? The whole episode begins with the the decision to run for president has already happened. We don't get to even see any of that decision making, any of those conversations. Yeah, we're like two days away from the election. Right. And then again, we sort of jump past the election itself. It's like we have, you know, it's similar to these older sitcoms where you have that three act structure and there's not, it's not broken up into the little sub scenes the way the newer ones are. So yeah, after those middle scenes where we get those debates and those conversations, it ends with like the next day in the classroom and the principal comes in and I noted we get a little bit of the sort of ancestor to the Mr. Moore-Dr. Samuels relationship because Mr. Cotter is the kind of cool younger teacher who's going to try to put you on the right path, but is also, you know, just, just kind of a, a cool guy. And the principal is a total square and nobody likes him. And so he comes in and basically announces, you didn't win. And, uh, you know, I think this is going to be a recurring theme with all of the sitcoms. We need to preserve the status quo of the show so you you lose the election. Right. Um, and so Barbarino doesn't win, but he gets 45 votes or something along those lines. And that was something to celebrate because they were like, look, there are only 30 sweat hogs. So that means you got all these other votes. And that's great because that's more people than have ever voted for a sweat hog before. And... Vinny's takeaway is all right. Well, I'll maybe I'll run next year and get 13 more people and that will be great. And who knows? Maybe, you know, maybe I'll even stay in school long enough to graduate. And do you have to have a high school diploma to run for president of the United States? 
Yeah, it ends on this sort of note of like humble optimism. You know, he sort of gets him to smile a little bit and go like, ah, it's not so bad. And uh, yeah, you know, and then and then we're kind of moving on. The show had a lot of, uh, you know, like Epstein's joke when he says, you think it's easy being a Puerto Rican Jew? Half my family was stealing pants and the other half was altering them. You know, like there's, <laughs> there's a lot in this show that ages terribly. And yet, it's like we say all the time, if part of the fun of this podcast of watching these shows is the time capsule element of it, just the wild anachronisms and seeing, you know, whether it's how people dress or how they talk, there's Welcome Back Cotter is such an embarrassment of riches with that kind of stuff. And again, the fact that they have all of these different ethnicities with real roles and stuff to do makes me much more forgiving of the fact that, yeah, the ethnic humor is offensive. It's still, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, I feel like the show has its heart in the right place. Well, and particularly the joke you just mentioned, right? Like that to me rings very true of something that people do now, which is I'm going to go ahead and make the joke about myself before anybody else can, because I know that somebody over here is thinking this and somebody over there is marginalizing me in that way. And so that like, I know people that have made jokes like that about their own ethnicities, right? Like, I know Jewish folks right now who still make those jokes about themselves, right? All right, let's move on to Webster. Oh, Webster. This is season six, the final season, episode five. But again, if you're looking for it on streaming, it's um, episode 11. And it is called The Election. Yeah, I think Webster may be the first sitcom I ever saw. I remember watching this with my parents as like a very young child. But I want to ask now the same question I asked about different strokes. What the hell are we looking at here? Is this an adult? Is this a child? It seems like they saw different strokes and were like, we'll see you, you're Gary Coleman, and raise you in Emmanuel Lewis. We're going to find a black kid that's even tinier. And what are you going to do about that? You're not wrong. It was definitely a, a different strokes uh, ripoff. But um, yeah, they just kind of went in a different direction with it. So the Emmanuel Lewis in this episode that we're watching is 17 years old, playing a sixth grader who is small for his age. His story is that there is no medical reason for his stature. He has grown six inches since he was um, 12 years old. And he is now like in the four foot something range. At the time we're watching this episode, he was in the three foot something range. So yeah, he's just a small kid or a small man now. What you just said is blowing my mind because his voice sounds like a little kid in the show and so i'm going well does is that part of his condition or is that acting is he just acting in that way that is convincing me that he's a little kid but my feeling after watching this episode was that his acting is kind of terrible so i don't know oh, wow. i don't know what to believe well okay so we are in the last season. So he could have been kind of doing, you know, autopilot. The other thing that we're seeing is that 
we're seeing a teenager who wants to be cool playing a little kid, right? So he's probably a little bit over it at this point, despite the fact that it's made him millions of dollars. But one of the things I clocked during this episode is that he's supposed to be this dorky little kid, but he is wearing underneath his open like Charles in charge, Scott Bayo shirt. He's got a gold chain and a gold ring and this like grown up watch that he's wearing. Like he, he looks very cool to be this dorky kid in the public service club. It looks like, you know, we happened to just watch uh, Austin Powers the other day. If Mr. T had his own mini-me, it would be Webster. Oh, God. Well, it's scenes. not as big of a chain as what Mr. T wore. His <laughs> outfits are something else. Yes, he looks strange in that scene, you know, with the chain and everything. In other scenes, he dresses like a little grandpa. He has like his little jacket and his little polo shirt and stuff. So the premise of this show is George Papadopoulos is an ex-football player, and in real life, Alex Karras or whatever his name is, the actor who played him, also uh, a defensive lineman, I think for like the Detroit Lions or something like that. So Emmanuel Lewis's character, Webster, loses his parents tragically in a car accident, and George Papadopoulos is his godfather, so he adopts him. Um, shortly after the accident, and he, you know, Webster moves in with George and his wife. And ma'am. He, ma'am. he calls his foster mom ma'am, even like when referring to her in the third person. Right. And there's an episode where she asks him why he does that. And, and he says, it's the closest thing to mom that I can call you that still respects my actual mom. Um, and real life, I didn't know this, but the mom and dad characters are actually married Hmm. um, and like crazy well-trained. Like the mom went to RADA, you know, which is the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. She's like a really highly trained actress. And yeah, and they both were uh, completely outshined in the show over and over again by the fun talents of Emmanuel Lewis. So yeah, this episode starts, as we alluded to, with a meeting of the public service club, right? Which is these four little kids. And we get this truly bizarre coincidence where Mayim Bialik is Webster's friend, part of this little club. And so this is the first of two episodes where we're going to see Mayim Bialik run for class president. That's right. She is a recurring character in season six of Webster. She's one of his friends named Frida. And um, this is 1988. So this is the same, like this is when her career started, right? She was in a show or a TV movie or something called Pumpkinhead. And then that immediately became Webster. And then that immediately became Beaches. And so this all happened for her in 1988. Um, so she is like four years younger in real life than Emmanuel Lewis, and she is towering over him in, in this episode. And she is kind of the leader of this public service club and is trying to rally the four kids. There's three, you know, her and three others. Um, and you might recognize one of the other kids. I think his name was like Herman or something in this, but he's from Mighty Ducks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so. Their issue is they want to raise money to buy a computer. Right? Well, they've raised. I think they raised money. They want to money, allocate right? their money. Right. There's already money that's been raised, and the other um, kid that's running for class president is again a popular kid, and he wants to throw a party right. with the money. So it's how are we going to allocate the money again? Talk about a time capsule. 
Just the idea that let's spend this money so that our school can have a computer. Well, it's another computer. Okay, because, our school can because, have two computers. Because the computer that they currently have. Now, look, this is 1988. So you went to school during this time. You remember this. There was the one computer in the library that you got to use when you were looking for a book. And all it had was like card catalog stuff guess, on it, right? Yeah, it's funny. I guess it depends on, you know, a lot of factors. Because I do kind of remember that, but then I also remember having computer room right. uh, where you would go and everyone would learn how to play Oregon Trail or whatever. But yeah. No, that's true. That's true. This definitely was in that time where it was like, I mean, I remember in my when we our classroom started having one and you got to yeah, play was- like the computer time. So what they were saying was that the line for the current computer is always really long and they want to get a second one to help relieve some of that long wait for the one computer. Yeah. And Webster makes a joke that I wrote down, but don't completely understand. He says, I must have a real soft spot for floppy disks. I think they were just like, you know, floppy disks. That's kind of a funny phrase. Let's do something with that. (laughs) I don't know that. Well, because originally wasn't he saying, hey, parties are fun. Like we could have a like, why not have a party? That's a good thing, too. And Maya and Bialik's character, Frida, is like, no, look, what do we go to school for? We go to school to learn. It's important. And the computer gives us access to knowledge and, you know, whatever. And so I think it's important that we have that we, you know, allocate these funds for a computer and not a party. So she has a fantastic walk. Like this is this is one of these things where it was like your character has to have a signature gate. Make it make one up. And she marches through the hallway like she's wearing shoes that are four sizes too big. She's clomping. And it's almost like the walking version of a Phoebe from Friends run. Her arms are going and her legs are flying out to the side. And she's got these great cat eye glasses. She looks, you know, very, you know, very harsh. And she's like, what you need to do? Yeah, there's, uh, you know, they they do a lot with her clothes as a shorthand for her personality. And yeah, this is a basic story arc that we're going to see in a lot of election episodes. This is the same exact thing that happens in the Saved by the Bell one, which we're not talking about properly today. But this is what Jesse does. She decides, oh, if you want me to be a popular airhead, then that's what I'll do. You know, so in this case, Frida, right, Mayan Bialik gets up at their little assembly and gives this very sort of you know, there there gives like three sentences of a very impassioned speech yeah. about what it's one of these for. like what is a school? Is it a a series of bricks and walls and chalkboards, or is it a place of learning and growth? You know, it's just it's a very sort of rhetorical and philosophical speech, and it's meant to demonstrate, along with her glasses and nerdy sweaters and everything, that she is the candidate of substance. And, you know, basically, uh, nobody likes her because she's not cool and fun enough. And so Webster, as her campaign manager, enlists a sort of Cindy Lauper-esque makeover specialist. Named Kiki. And so they say they have this whole argument about having this, you know, look, image, update, right? Because Frida doesn't want to do it. Be much like Vinnie Barbarino is like, look, if I'm like, if they don't want me, then I shouldn't be their president. Like that's, I, I don't think that's 
what I want to do. And Webster's like, look, we're not interested in changing the substance of you. We just need people to listen to you and no one's going to listen to you unless you look cool. Yeah, Webster's metaphor is the wrapping on a candy bar, but he's basically talking about branding, right? He's saying, we just need you, you know, we need to get their attention with something palatable, and then you can have your substantive platform. Right. And so she agrees to go along with it, but she's not happy about it. She gets her makeover, and it is hilarious because she basically transforms into a crimped hair version of Blossom. I was going to say Kimmy Gibbler, but yeah. Uh, very Blossom-esque. Yeah, I wrote down her tie-dye shirt and Crayola cardigan is a harbinger of what's to come on Blossom. Yeah, for sure. And the the thing that just made me so happy were, this is right in my wheelhouse, right? This is 1988. I was in probably third grade or, or second grade. And the double scrunchies in your hair where it was like half up, half down, and the rest of your hair being crimped. Oh, my gosh. That very sort of asymmetrical. Oh, 100%. And the the two colors of socks that you would stack on top of one another, and then on the other leg, you would have them stacked in the other way, and they were scrunched down. Like, the everything about her look, I was like, yes. If you loved 13 going on 30 that crew of girls from 13 going on 30 they look i mean she she looked like she was cut right out of their little crew yeah it's a very cindy lopper desperately seeking susan type look and then we get another sort of mini trope because it works all too well and we get the thing you get in a lot of school-based sitcoms where it's like oh now i'm too cool for my friends right and right. so she transitions to hanging out with the cool kids and schmoozing with everybody. And when Webster wants to talk about her campaign, it's all, Mama, I don't have time for you. Right, because I've had three sleepover parties in one week. This is amazing. And well, just, you know, I've been thinking about it, Webster, and I don't think we need the computer anymore. Everybody really wants a party. And I think maybe we should just go with that. Yeah. So Webster quits. He, you know, very dramatically takes the the campaign pin off of his shirt and throws it down and stomps away. And he goes home and we finally get uh, appearance by the adults because this show, this particular episode is like a, a Charlie Brown special or something. It's like a world with no, no adults over the age of 20, you know, in this entire show. But so- well, and again, this is at towards the end of the series. So I wonder if they'd exhausted a lot of those plot lines and they were leaning more heavily on the kids. And then again, also you've got Emmanuel Lewis, who, while yes, is still playing a young, very young person, is a teenager. And how great would it be to surround him with a cast of fun kids like Maya Bialik, who becomes, like I said, a, a recurring character in this last season? Webster goes home and he's basically pouting to George, his foster dad, and saying, you know, everything's a mess. You know, my candidate doesn't listen to me anymore. And long story short, George convinces him to run himself against Frida. Yeah, he's like, hey, you, I mean, you've already got the cool factor, so there's you know, no problem there, and they'll listen to what you have to say. And so there's a debate the next day or like final speeches or something the next day, and Webster goes and he gives Frida's speech that she was never able to finish. Yeah, she, he... He plagiarizes her own speech 
back to her, but in, in a good spirit, because he's sort of reminding her and reminding everybody what it's all about. I also thought it was hilarious that his reasoning for getting the computer instead of the party is like, well, the party's, you know, just going to be this temporary thing that's over once it's over. And he says, the computer will be around for generations to come. But know? he's not wrong because how long did you see? Well, maybe you didn't because you didn't go back to school like I did and become a teacher. But when I started teaching in 2005, those old Macs, not the new iMacs with the colors sure. and stuff that I came out in the late about. 90s, those old Macs. Yeah, with the little rainbow yep. icon. I still had those in my very first classroom, and they were been there since the early 90s, late 80s, when they were purchased by some kid who ran for class president, no doubt. Yeah, point well taken. But I do think it's funny to talk about computers as like this permanent thing that, oh, once you have it, it's just taken care of forever. But uh, Frida sort of sees the error of her ways. And we get, again, it's funny how many little sort of random other sitcom tropes are woven into this particular one. Because she has this symbolic moment where she puts her glasses back on. Right. And that is meant to symbolize, I'm, I'm a serious person again, right? I'm not some Jimmy Gibbler type bouncing off the wall with my weird hair scrunchies. Now I'm wearing glasses again. So that means I'm serious about being a good president. Well, and she was like, in case you didn't recognize me, I'm still me. All, the only thing that changed is the wrapper or whatever. And she takes off this kind of funky bandana she has tied around her neck and, you know, and then puts on her glasses. But the thing that I think is so interesting is that when we get this echoed in the later Blossom episode as well, and also in the Parker Lewis episode, right? So in, in Webster, in Parker Lewis, and in Blossom, we have a woman or, you know, a female candidate running against a male candidate. And in every single one of these, the girl is not taken seriously and unless she changes her look or changes her message. And the the man character can be just kind of a waste of space. Yeah. And still get votes. And it's very disappointing to see that play out in these innocent ways for the most part, because these are kids' TV shows, just how much it really just tells girls that it's all about the way you look is whether or not you're going to be taken seriously and you have to change your look in order to be taken seriously. And then the minute you change your look, you're going to be taken seriously, but not in the ways you want. And then you have to like push your friends away in order to, or your new friends away in order to be taken seriously again. And it's this constant struggle that plays out all the way up until 2016 and Hillary Clinton, you know? Yeah. I will get a lot of the gender stuff in the blog awesome one. But that is interesting. I didn't think of it like that. But you're right. I was thinking of it more from the point of view of they're all underdog stories. We're always going to be on the side of the less popular candidate that's trying to make inroads against the antagonist who's the cool kid. And then it was kind of funny how Welcome Back Cotter flipped that on its head and was like, well, what if we, the audience, are on the side of the bullies? It ends with them reconciling and 
Frida withdraws and becomes Webster's campaign manager. So they've sort of switched positions. Does it even show how the election plays out or it just kind of ends on that happy note of we're friends again? We don't find out who wins. We don't get the speeches from, you know, Bobby, the other candidate. And yeah, so, you know, there's just, there's an, the assumption is that, oh, look, everything's good. So yeah, don't know. All right, let's move on to Parker Lewis. Parker Lewis Can't Lose, Season 1, Episode 4, titled, Parker Lewis Must Lose. Yeah, so this one definitely loomed fairly large for me as a sitcom that now is, I think, mostly forgotten or remembered as a little bit of a punchline. Watching this, I mean, the thought that is sort of unavoidable is you cannot overstate the impact of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the 1986 movie that really, you know, directly inspired multiple TV shows. And I would argue a whole new sort of inception of your teenage protagonist. Yeah, this is one of those shows. I remember the name of the show. I remember that it was Ferris Bueller. I remember never seeing it or knowing anything about it, but it is not surprising to me that this is one you watched because this is like a high school show. It's young people playing young people, doing, you know, teenager-y kind of things. Anyway, this was not a show I watched. So tell us everything about it, Jay. Well, like I said, it's heavily influenced by that Ferris Bueller Attitude, the idea that we want to see a teenage protagonist who is not an underdog. We want to see somebody who has it all figured out. And it's fun and funny for us to see how many steps ahead he is and all of these, these crazy technological things he's come up with. And the fact that he's, he's financially affluent means we're not going to resent him for being some sort of bourgeois, you know, brat. We're going to, admire the fact that he has access to all of this gear that enables him to do these crazy schemes and stuff. And so, again, it is very much rooting for the overdog. You know, he's not a bully or anything, but it's just that thing of now we're on the side of the popular kid and the cool kid, and he's going to be white and well-to-do and charming and kind of preppy. And uh, the fun of the show is just sort of like watching him work his magic, you know, watching him do his schemes. And I would argue this one, you know, looking at the timeline, Ferris Bueller comes out in 1986, Saved by the Bell comes out in 1989, and then this in 1990. I would argue if you're a horror movie fan, it's like Ferris Bueller is Halloween, Saved by the Bell is Friday the 13th, and then Parker Lewis and all the rest of them are like all those other imitators, where this is biting off Saved by the Bell, I think, just as much as Ferris Bueller. I think they're going, let's take that, make it a little more adult, like a little more sophisticated, and put it on primetime. So... These, I definitely see this connection that you're talking about to like a Zach Morris thing. And I had never thought about that being like Ferris Bueller before, just because when I watched Saved by the Bell, I'd never seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So Saved by the Bell and that whole connection never would have tracked for me because I watched Saved by the Bell as a kid and didn't know about Ferris Bueller. But 
Yeah, this definitely, it has that connection. Yeah. And the other thing I would just say about this show that seems a little before its time watching it now is the return to the single camera format as very much part of the creative recipe of the show, right? Well, and that's the thing I noticed right off the bat. They, like, this one opens with the series of, it almost looks like handheld, well, very, like, super close-up shots at weird all, angles. Yes, it it's like an ancestor of Breaking Bad in that way, where they do a lot of these weird angles. And the opening scenes, I remembered this, it all came rushing back to me when we started it. They always have this mise-en-scene, if you will, where they're being shot from inside something that's being opened and closed. Right. So it's inside a refrigerator or a school locker or a suitcase or whatever it is. Yeah. And, and in this case, it was the inside of the medicine cabinet and it was his family like getting ready for work in school yes. in the morning and everybody was coming into the medicine cabinet and doing whatever they needed. And it was uh, like, there's some joke, which that was really cool. Like there were some really interesting techniques in terms of like cinematography that they were using that, uh, like you just said, there are he ahead of its time. Like I really, I really dug that. Um, we accidentally because like we said the uh, episode was mislabeled so we accidentally watched the beginning of the wrong episode and they did the same thing it was that from the inside of a washing machine yeah and i was gonna ask you so they did do that at the beginning of every episode yeah, that was the format you would have one by one a character opens something looks in and then slams the the thing closed so it cuts to black and it says parker and then the next person opens it the little sister or whatever she tries to play some prank or whatever rummages around and then closes it so it goes back to black parker lewis and then step by step it it spells out the title of the series and you get those yeah four little little vignettes or whatever of the characters opening and closing this thing i mean really smart like i i i'm I did not, I do not like this show. I think it's kind of dumb, but there were some really interesting things. As, like, if you take yourself out of, like, oh, is this a good show? Am I hearing a good story? So much, but really cool things visually to watch. Then, after that open is done, that's when we get all those, like, weird little handheld close up shots of, like, people's hands yes. and, like, things happening at the school and then some kids talking about the election or whatever. And it feels like found footage. And then also, Parker Lewis's whole thing is that he's got like the Parker Lewis cam that he hides in different places so he can get video footage of people and then edit it to make them like deep fake say things that they didn't say. And that is that something that happens over and over again in all the different episodes? Yeah, definitely. And again, it's taken from Ferris Bueller, just that whole thing. You know, remember in that one, Matthew Broderick has his tape deck boom box that's hooked up by a pulley to something. So when somebody calls him on the phone, there'll be a pre-recorded message. That thing in the 90s of like, we have access to all this AV gear, you know, all we need to do is connect our eighth inch audio plug to this RCA port and then I can record you. Yeah, the, the surveillance and all that was part of it. But this is you, right? Like you did that. Like you were that I didn't, kid I that didn't made- I cameras in the girls' locker room. To well, no, I don't mean like um, stock Yes. Yeah. I was an AV kid. And definitely just that whole idea of like, oh, let's go to Radio Shack and stock up on that kind of stuff. Um, but while we're on that subject, his parents are the proprietors of a video 
store. And that was some just a wave of nostalgia when they cut to that. Those those walls with the slats on them, like not even video stores per se, just a, like a Radio Shack or a Babbage's in the mall where they would have those walls so that they could put shelves on them and stuff. So yeah, just that was this whole uh, other aspect of nostalgia. But definitely, yes, the technology, all of that was was part of the whole deal. And yeah, this single camera thing, I think you're seeing the beginnings of stuff like Scrubs and 30 Rock. Oh, where, yeah. The quick cuts. It yeah. was so also unreal the voiceover. for that time. Yeah. If you're on Saved by the Bell and you're shooting it like a traditional sitcom, you need to have the character turn to the audience and break the fourth wall and talk. Whereas something like this, you can have voiceovers and montages and little flash forwards and all kinds of things. And it changes the the story like the actual makeup of the show creatively so that's the big picture this particular episode like you said starts with the montage of the mouths talking and the smiling teeth and everything and gets you all sort of into the mindset of an election right he's explaining to us why he's running in the first place he's like look i'm not running because i want to be class president. I'm not running because I want access to anything because I can already have access to anything. I'm literally only running because it'll piss the principal off, right? Ms. Musso, and this is a hard character to get a handle on watching it now. I think, again, in the spirit of Ferris Bueller, it's just supposed to be that she's a bad guy. And so like she's like Ed Rooney in Ferris Bueller. And so it's always just them trying to get the best of her, but it's just a bizarre decision to have her played by this like 32 year old woman. Well, and it's the thing that I struggle with is that she, I mean, and maybe it's just because it's Fox, but she is hypersexualized as a school leader. And it's, it's so problematic. She has this guy that dresses all in black. That is a student that is her lackey. And he like follows her around everywhere. And it's like, and she is like, she's way too sexy. She wears these like black see-through hose and tight clothing and like in the episode that we accidentally started watching, she checks out a student's butt. There's multiple times in this episode where the camera, for no reason at all, just sort of pans down her body yeah. and stops. Well, it's not for no reason. It's because oh. she makes a joke about like the football players checking her out or something. It is. It's weird. It's gross. Yeah, like it's it's a weird characterization and yeah watching it you're just not you just don't know what to make of it because again she's they cast this like nice looking attractive woman to play her but you're always supposed to be like mad at her and so it just yeah and again we watched this one episode there is some weird edible stuff going on in that decision making and the characterization for sure so the other thing that i thought kind of dated this <laughs> you know if the if the production values of it actually put it ahead of its time the thing that dated it were the vomit shirts that were eight sizes too big for all of the characters he um, parker lewis consistently wears these shirts that look like someone has thrown up on them and they could fit a 
400 pound man and Parker Lewis is a skinny teenager. Yeah, I wrote that they, the three of them, the three main characters, Jerry, Parker, and Mike, all typify the 90s fashion in different ways. Parker Lewis has, yeah, yeah, the preppy or whatever you would call it. Uh, he's very put together. Not preppy. No, I, I would like he he dresses he dresses nice, quote unquote. Sure, he looks like the white kid who's dressing like color me bad. Yeah, he's got these very loud patterns and everything. It's yeah, a little bit of that sort of Vinnie Del Pino or Zach Morris for that matter look. But I agree, he's he's pushing it in this certain way. And then Jerry always wears a trench coat, and that in and of itself has right. a certain 90s vibe. That had to go away after Columbine. Yeah. And then Mike is the James Dean throwback. He's the one that's got a little bit of that peach pit throwback to the 50s kind of yes, vibe. I totally see that. He's got that same kind of hair, too. Yeah. And he tucks in his shirt in that way and everything. So, yeah, they're all super 90s in their own way. So this story is another one where we have the candidate of substance versus the empty-headed popular candidate. But in this case, the twist is that our protagonist is the empty-headed popular candidate who sort of gets a conscience and decides he wants to lose. Right, which is why the episode is titled Parker Lewis Must Lose. He realizes, well... Thanks to his many... Parker cams. Right. He he is interested in dating the girl who's running against him, and she doesn't have the time of day for him. And so, which, you know, he's that's all fine and good. That's not going to change his mind. And then he has a camera, one of his Parker cams, planted in one of her campaign meetings, and he realizes that she should be class president and he should not. Yeah, she's talking about, you know, how her volunteering has been affected. And just, yeah, she, in this private conversation with her friend, says all of the things that makes Parker realize, oh, I'm kind of a dick. This person really wants to win. Again- And would do a good job. Yeah. And again, same exact thing that happens in Saved by the Bell when Zach realizes, oh, Jesse actually cares about being president. I was only running because I got to go on that ski trip or whatever the hell that is. So he decides that he's going to try, Parker Lewis decides that he's going to try to lose. Why doesn't he just drop out? We don't know. They don't tell us till much later, right? Like his first choice is to try to sabotage himself instead of just leaving the race. I was going to say he needs to take a page from Webster and Mayan Bialik. Join forces, drop out and become her campaign manager. That would have worked. So he does does decide to self-sabotage, but nothing works, right? Everything he does just makes people like him more. He tears down all of his signs. And it just makes people like rally in his defense. Right. The the football team finds the signs in the dumpster out by their practice field. And they're like, somebody tore down all your signs. Don't you worry. We'll get them. And they hang back up all the signs. He tries to go to the girl that's running for class president and say, look, I want you to win. Like, you know, again, doesn't say let's join forces. Doesn't like just. Uh, and at that point, though. The like nerdy kid that hangs out with them has explained to him that if he drops out of the race, he's going to win anyway, because everybody is like, 
totally on his side. Yeah. So I guess he has no, he feels like he has to change the hearts and minds of people and turn them against him. So yeah, his idea is we're going to do the old editing audio out of context type thing and create this recording of Ms. Musso saying, I want Parker Lewis to be the president or something like that. And then as she is addressing the students, you know, giving her little speech before the election or whatever, they cut in the wires, blah, 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 hack into her speech. So it looks like and sounds like she is endorsing Parker Lewis. And that's the one thing that makes everybody hate him. And so the election comes and goes with him getting only one vote and losing. And his one vote is the girl, right? Right. And so then she is like, hey, you know, I voted for you. And and he was like, wait, what? <laughs> okay. And then he's like, well, want to go out sometime? Yeah. So he gets his one goal of, you know, uh, having her pay attention to him. But yeah, another case of let's preserve the status quo of the show and you don't get to be president. So we can't jump off of Parker Lewis Can't Lose before just mentioning that while we talked about the problematic character that we find of Mrs. Musso or Miss Musso, um, she voiced the namesake of our studio dog. She is the voice of Dee Dee Pickles in uh, Rugrats, and our studio dog is named Dee Dee Pickles. All right, let's move on to Blossom. This episode is wild. Season three, episode 10, The Making of a President. We have an episode of Blossom that is shot in a, like we're watching an episode of Dateline. Yeah. It's a documentary format. Yeah. yeah, And starring Keith Morrison from Dateline. Yeah. The cold open of the show establishes this special format where, yeah, it shows a news broadcast saying, and this is a very tenuous premise, I think, but they're like, you know, oh, with, with all the the hubbub of the national election, we thought we would do a news report on a high school election to see if this is trickling down into the, the youth of today. So we're going to focus on that. And that would be the first of the political um, double entendre or whatever they're, that they're going to use. I mean, over and over and over again, they say trickle down. We, later on, we get the, you know, you, sir, are no so-and-so in yeah, a la this, Jack Kennedy. It's crazy. So this came out in during the 1992 election, and this was everywhere. And it's funny because looking at it now, we've talked a little bit about this before, you know, the... Uh, Dirty cesspool of politics that we were dealing with in the 90s looks quaint in some ways compared to the cesspool of politics we're dealing with now. For all you youngsters out there, this 92 election, they were all about, oh, they're slinging the mud and they're playing dirty and all the low blows and everything. You know, it was so... It seemed like oh, politics is getting so messy and brutal and dirty. And, you know, looking back on it, it's like, oh, we, we were just getting started in those times. <laughs> but yeah, the 1992 election, Clinton versus George Bush, and the 1988 election of Dukakis and George Bush is 
all over this thing, all kinds of references and little jokes and allusions and stuff. Yep. They said, you know, at one point we get a breakdown of the polls and we've got the all the girls at the school are leaning towards Blossom. All the boys at the school are leaning towards whatever Warwick or whatever the kid's name was that was running. And we have a small write-in percentage for Perot of the three kids who also have big ears. Yeah. Yeah. We got a big ear Perot joke, but let's back up for a second. Blossom, right? I remember this being similar to Rock, R-O-C, another, this, that one does not, is not remembered as well. But this thing of like these sort of prestige family sitcoms in the yes. 90s, where it, it was a little bit of a reaction to your Charles and Charges and your different strokeses, where we're like, okay, there's, there's like different tiers now. And we're going to make another sitcom that's a little more like family ties, yes. where it's like, or all in the family, where it's like, it's still funny and goofy. It's still a sitcom, but we're going back to basics. No one in the family is a robot or an alien or a boxer <laughs> that we hired as a babysitter or something. This is a basic down to earth family show where we're going to take on real life issues. And so I didn't necessarily appreciate the premise of the show, which is that the dad, similar to Family Ties, the dad is a hippie. He's a musician. He's a single dad. It's not as on the nose as Family Ties, where the parents are liberal and the kids are conservative. But it's the same thing of, okay, now it's the 90s. So the people that were the rebellious youth of the last generation, now their parents. And what does it mean to be the teenage daughter of somebody who used to be a counterculture guy and now is your dad? Right. And it's interesting because it is like 12 to 15 years after Family Ties when we're looking at this. Because Family Ties started in like 82 or something, 81, right? It was really early 80s. This is like 92. I think this show started in like 1990, right? So, so yeah, 10 years later, but we're still looking at baby boomer, hippie kind of people as parents and they were parents of teenagers in 1980 and still parents of teenagers in 1990. Now we've got Blossom as the youngest, right, of the three. And so she does have the older brothers and, you know, Family Ties kind of centers around the older kids, not so much, you know, Jennifer and the new one they added in later on. But it's it just speaks to that longevity of boomers as parents throughout all of you know our youth yeah sure. even her name blossom you know right. it's it's sort of the opposite it's like alex p keaton is what if you were a hippie and then your son is like this he turns against you and this turns reaganite, into the opposite. yeah there's a reaganite conservative right and blossom is more just like no the daughter is sort of the logical extension of like she's blossom and she wears all these interesting outfits and stuff and so she's not a hippie herself because that's over, but she's this new thing. And it's just kind of exploring that in a more nuanced way. Yeah, definitely. So we get, like we said, it's this sort of documentary style. We have amazing, you know, I mean, Keith, Keith Morrison, who is a newsman from Dateline NBC, as the newsman doing this report, we have the family sitting on the couch watching the report of the, you know, 
of this election. They followed the election. And this aired on Monday nights. Blossom aired on Monday nights. So this would have been the Monday before everybody went to vote the next day because this was in 92 and most places did not have early voting back in the 90s. That came about later on. Yeah, no, I remember this being a thing. And this is another trope we'll do at some point, but the the sitcoms tackling, you know, the, the current politics and stuff. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I vaguely remember this airing, you know, when, when it originally aired. And so, yeah, this particular episode is a single camera format where there are no laughs. And it's conspicuous because when we cut back to the family watching, it is the normal sitcom set and you have the studio audience laughing with them. But throughout the episode, we have these obvious laugh lines of Six, the friend going, oh, why don't you tell him to suck a banana or whatever, and just dead silence. And yeah, it's because this whole episode is produced differently. Yeah. So what I also was a huge fan of Blossom. Like Blossom, first of all, Maya Bialik just in general I have a big nose. She has a big nose. I loved beaches. She was a little, you know, like she was little Bette Midler. So she was this little performing kid that wanted to dance on the boardwalk and have a good time. And I was like, that's me. And then she got this show and I was like, yeah, that's awesome. And she's dancing in the opening and doing all this gym. And I was like, that's me. I had the hats. I was all about this whole look. Like, Oh, I, I mean, she, it was right on the money in terms of like little girls like me saw myself in Blossom and I loved that show and I wanted to be her for sure. And this was her second crack because I remember there was this show Malloy that had Mayim Bialik as the titular Malloy and Jennifer Aniston was her sister. It was, I probably mentioned that when we were talking about Friends. It was one of the 17 Jennifer Aniston based sitcoms that didn't go until Friends finally did. And yeah, it was the case of both of them of like, okay, this one doesn't work. See you again next year at pilot season. And, you know, and Blossom was the one that made it. So, what was the reasoning behind Blossom getting into the race in the first place? I don't know that she necessarily has one. It starts like so many of these do with the election already being underway. And yeah, I don't know if we really get into the the motivation of her. Because I remember uh, there's the scene where she's sitting on like uh, the field or whatever, like some lawn outside the school. And there she's talking to six and she, you know, they're talking about like, well, what, you know, why would I even bother getting into the race? This kid is going to win. He's popular. He's the incumbent. He like, there's just, there's no oh, reason well, not to. And then. And again, it goes back to the sexism and everything that he's not representing everybody in the school because he, it's a little bit like the allocating money for a party versus a computer thing. It's like they want to do donkey basketball, which apparently resulted in the death of a mule or something. <laughs> right. But and I'm pretty sure we had donkey basketball at my school. I've never um, heard of this. What is it? I don't know. I didn't go. So I don't know, but I don't like the sound of it. It sounds like the kind of thing that I hope they don't do anymore. Yeah, I think it's just like all of his, you know, activities and things that he's planning are only for a certain uh, portion of the electorate. Yeah, so six is 
all of the roles, right? She's the press secretary. She's the campaign manager. She's the, you know, campaign coordinator. She's the this. She's doing all of the things, but doesn't really have any ideas other than like, you have to have a slogan and you have to have a song and, you know, you need to be in the race. Yeah. They have a montage of her various you know, approaches, she gets on a stage and plays the Star Spangled Banner on a trumpet. They have Joey Lawrence, her brother, do a rap song. Uh, they're sort of like flailing until they come upon this feminist angle, right? And Six says, you'll be the Jackie Robinson of Tyler High, which uh. is maybe not the best. You know, you, you've got a perfectly valid point to make. Maybe that's not the best comparison right but, they were talking about firsts i think yeah, that's what she was going who for was the, but uh, who was that the prime minister um be the margaret uh what's thatcher. her face yeah you could be the margaret thatcher of of tyler high that yeah, might but work she wouldn't a little better do that though because margaret thatcher is super conservative right so yeah so uh she says you'll be the jackie robinson of tyler high right and so they're gonna come up they're they're gonna tap into the whole thing of breaking the glass ceiling and all that. And that really works. And then that's when the campaign kind of turns ugly and we start to see all these parallels really explicitly of the um, Clinton and Bush campaign, right? Yeah. So you get the Warwick campaign tries to dig up dirt and says, you know, this campaign's really about family values and how can Blossom say she has family values when her brother Brother is a drug addict and an alcoholic, and that is and, and a and a criminal, right? Like that's the story of Anthony, the oldest brother, um, was that he is like he lives at home in his twenties because he's a recovering alcoholic and drug addict, and he's had some run-ins with the law. So that kind of paralleled what happened in the Clinton campaign, where Bill Clinton's brother was like, you know, this recovering alcoholic or not so recovering alcoholic and it had all these kind of run-ins with the law and shady yeah. things in his past. In a broader sense, this term family values was a big buzzword in the 90s and it was their way of sort of subtly saying, you know, you just this sort of like catch-all phrase for like, you just need to be more like us, you know. Uh, they throw in the she didn't inhale line in yep. one of their little press conferences, which we were talking about this a little bit. It is so absurd that Bill Clinton, a Rhodes Scholar, thought it was a good strategy that when he was called out for smoking pot on his campaign, he explained, oh, don't worry, I smoked it, but I didn't inhale it, right? Like the dumbest possible reason. And the only people that that would fool are people who care about that stuff, right? Because anybody that actually smoked weed in college or was his age or whatever, didn't care. And they were like, who cares about it? And they knew he was full of shit when he said it. Who was he saying that for? Yeah, it's I, the like ultimate pandering. Yeah, I just can't imagine anybody who would be in favor of somebody who smoked but didn't inhale. Like that's that's the worst combination. It's like, but that's what I'm saying. It's like you, if you know, you know, and you knew that was bullshit. Yeah, we also get a funny sequence. Blossom is appealing to the quote unquote special interest, so she's going around, like you said, she's talking to the one. Indian kid. She talks to the cheerleaders about getting new pom-poms. And she talks to the one girl who got hurt because she stepped on a tack or something. So she looks into the camera and says, read my lips, no new tacks. 
which was, of course, a dig on George H.W. Bush. That was his famous line, read my lips, no new taxes. We get during their debate, Warwick, her her adversary, says, I've been compared to leaders from Thomas Jefferson to Papa Smurf. And so she gets to say the line, I knew Papa Smurf, I worked with Papa Smurf, and you, sir, are no Papa Smurf. So yeah, like you said, it's just one reference after another to these modern day political scandals and foibles and whatnot. Definitely. And then there was the tapping into the Hollywood aspect, which we also saw kind of come out in the campaigns of 88 and 92 as well. We got the trumpet playing, which is meant to mirror the saxophone playing. Yeah. And we also welcome back to the podcast, Ted from Hey Dude as Vinny, the boyfriend. That's right. You know, this is again, more the family value stuff. It's the same press conference or the same you know, maybe it's another press conference in the same area where now they're saying, what's the deal with your boyfriend? Did you really check into a motel with him? And I remember that episode of Blossom. It was a whole big thing where they got into a hotel room. That's another losing your virginity or not type episode. And, you know, Vinny points out, well, we didn't have sex because, you know, spoiler alert, they decide not to. But yeah, everything about their relationship is being scrutinized. And, uh, and that was another one where this, like, you know, of course, I immediately, it starts rubbing me the wrong way, where we see this very different treatment of female candidates and women in the public space. Uh, it's all about you know, what she looks like. Is she approachable? Has she had sex? And it's all about these things that like, it doesn't matter. You know, a man doesn't have to change his clothes in order to get to be the president. He's also allowed to have sex with whoever he wants and still can be the president. And like, this is, it's so problematic. And what's so interesting about that is even though they're having this much more like feminist type conversation around the this issue this time when we have a character that Mayim Bialik is playing running for class president, we still have her boyfriend being the one who ultimately is able to shut down the conversation on it by saying we didn't have sex. She tries multi on multiple occasions to tell the reporter who is also a young girl asking the question that that question is inappropriate and that it shouldn't even be a question that's asked. And it is not something that is anyone's business. She tries again and is like, that's private. And it, it also shouldn't matter. Like it, it's not at issue here and they will not let up. And ultimately her boyfriend has to say, well, we didn't even have sex. And that's what ends the debate. And it is so frustrating. Yeah. And you're not even getting to the other half of this equation, which is Warwick has a sex scandal of his own. He apparently slept with a teacher and they have this whole bit where they have this young woman on camera, but her face is you know, uh, like, yeah, her face is grayed out, but then they forget to do it at the end. But the joke there is that that scandal makes him go up in the polls. Well, and that 
parallels with the Jennifer Flowers, right? That was her name, right? The one that Clinton slept with that they tried to, or the, that she, that he had had some, you know, relationship with or whatever. The Bush campaign dug up that dirt. They put it out there. There had been a blue dot over her face that like was just a little bit askew enough of the time that anybody who watched the video could kind of figure out the, who it was. And so that uh, was another one of these direct parallels to something that had happened in the campaign. And what came out of it was that Clinton went up in the polls. Exactly. And it's funny with all of these, I have no notes about how they end. It always kind of ends with a whimper. So she, Blossom doesn't win. And that, you know, it was a very close election. It was like 47% to the Warwick guy and 46% to her. And so she loses in a squeaker, like you said, to keep the status quo, because we don't want all the episodes from here on out to have her like have this, you know, oh, I'm beholden to school because I'm now the class president or whatever. So she loses in in a squeaker, as they call it. And we go back to the normal sitcom set where she's like, man, you know, something about, oh, it's a it's a it's a bummer I lost, but I guess it's for the best or something. Politics is dirty. I'm glad I'm not involved in it. Yeah, that's pretty much it. We also get a JFK movie reference at the end, just making sure we toss in some more of that early 90s time capsule stuff. There's just a little bit about, oh, and we we found out who really shot JFK or whatever because of the Oliver Stone movie that was all in the news at that time as well. Yeah, it's another case of your candidate of substance versus your sort of popular schmuck. And yeah, like you said, it's another case of, you know, because in real life, whether you're talking about politics or school elections or whatever, just because of the numerical reality, most of the time you don't win. So it's it's easy enough to have these these episodes structured like that of, yeah, you give it your all, you, you know, learn a little something from it, you stick to your integrity, and at the end you lose, but you're you live to fight another day. Yep. I think one of the things that kind of is a through line through all of these episodes, not just the underdog thing and the having to change to be popular thing, like all of that kind of plays out, but it's also the toll that it takes on the people who run, right? That you you learn something about yourself and you learn, the biggest thing you learn is that you don't really want to be a part of it. Yeah. Which I think is true enough uh, in real life, you know, not necessarily just for president and politics and stuff, but yeah, sometimes people throw themselves into these super competitive things. And politics is a sort of quintessential example of something that could be a altruistic or a sort of charitable, noble undertaking, but a lot of times becomes a self-serving, egotistical thing, or like you said, just becomes a sort of exhausting, you know, uh, just really taxing process. And yeah, kind of kills you to, to do it. Well, and look, I mean, I think it speaks to the apathy that a lot of us feel about that is that 
it's really, really hard to be someone who cares all the time and is working in service of others without getting cynical, number one. And number two, a lot of the time, the people that do push to be in that type of role in the limelight in those ways aren't doing it because they care. Because if they were doing it because they cared, it would be emotionally exhausting and so emotionally taxing that you couldn't actually keep it up. So it becomes this like, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Was it my narcissism that propelled me into doing this thing? Or did I start doing it for the right reasons? And I've just become so cynical that now I'm this like the Warwick character and Blossom, the incumbent who just all I care about is winning because of course I'm going to win because whatever you know i've just yeah. i'm a political dynasty like the bush family <laughs> and so that's why i'm here and that's why i'm doing this and so i think it's that is what is so challenging right because you can look at it so cynically and you can think about leaders so cynically yeah but i would say on the other hand sometimes this dichotomy is a little false so all of these Shows are making this assumption that you can be the candidate of substance or the candidate of charisma. And there's always somebody that's really popular and fun and knows how to get along with people and connect to people. And then there's the other person that has good ideas and actually cares what happens. And of course, that is a true contrast, but real life isn't that simple. And a lot of times I would say that maybe what makes a good politician is the combination of both that you know the the leaders that we admire are the people who their charisma and their passion and their ideas they're all interconnected it's not like oh he wants to improve the city oh and by the way he's also a fun guy that people get along with like all of those things can be intertwined and add up to an effective leader yeah and but even so though i think when we're talking particularly on these highest levels like you know in the case of joe biden current president he was the candidate of substance that was the loser for year on year on year on year on year on yeah. year on year until he was in his 70s and then the only other option was a criminal like you gotta well, think about it in those yeah, ways yeah, right but i would argue obama is the counterpoint like he's the one that i think of as he's the whole package and his charisma and his you know substantive leadership aren't just two random things. It's it's all part of who he is and how his mind works. So yeah, I, I just feel like it's a little simplistic. But look, these episodes all give us a chance to put the characters to the test in that way. Are they going to stick to their their who they really are or are they going to change? And it gives you an easy way to let their peers writ large, their their student body to be this sort of Greek chorus. And maybe now you can do stuff with social media and the internet where you have a character do something and, oh my God, I lost all my followers on Instagram or whatever. But in these days, that's an easy way to to see, you know, oh, the polls are in and now everybody likes you. Oh, oh, the new poll is in, everybody hates you. It's an easy way to sort of 
contrive something where you can take the temperature of how everybody feels about your teenage characters. Yeah, no, and and this was a really fun set of episodes to watch. Like as much as I'm like, meh, Parker Lewis can't lose, wasn't enjoyable. All of the um, technological uh, aspects, like all of the cinematography aspects of it, were really cool. And I, it was a good watch, even if it wasn't a fun story for me. Welcome back, Cotter. The other one I kind of was like crapping on during this. It was in its little infancy. You know, it was still season one. So like, I, I think there were some probably better episode, episodes of the show later on, um, although kind of a dumb show to begin with. But I think in this case, out of all four of these shows, Blossom would have been my winner, except for the fact that it was this documentary style, let's switch up the sitcom way of doing things. And so it didn't, and it, I mean, look, it worked and it, it definitely like landed in its time and all of that was great, but Webster wins. Yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, entertainment wise, these are all kind of on the same plane for me. They're just so time capsule like this Welcome Back Cotter episode is the most 1975-iest 20 minutes of TV I've ever seen. You know, this Blossom episode is the most 1992-iest TV episode ever. Like, they're just so of their time. The Webster, you know, with his little grandpa outfits and then dressing like Mr. T randomly for that one scene, you know, that Parker Lewis thing, again, that like, so early 90s synchronize your swatches for god's sake right (laughs) what could be more 1991 than a character whose catchphrase is synchronize your swatches so it's like yeah they're all really fun in that way none of them are great tv i feel like i don't know i feel like my mvp would maybe be welcome back cotter just for that sense of like you see the beginnings of Married with Children, of that whole early Fox TV lineup where, like I said, it's like we're we're going to give every person in the audience uh, a few swigs of Jack Daniels before we start shooting. You know, just that raucous energy that, uh, I don't know, that, that just, you know, brings a smile to my face. <laughs> well, all right, then. So, so much for the class president elections. What are we talking about next week? Next week, we are revisiting part two of our Will They, Won't They series. This time, the tension is rising. We're going to watch Cheers, season one, episode 14, Let Me Count the Ways. Friends, season two, episode seven, The One Where Ross Finds Out. The Office, season two, episode 10, Christmas Party. And finishing it off with New Girl, season two, episode three, Fluffer. Yep. The epic Will They, Won't They study continues next week. And until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to The Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The Sitcom Study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. 